doctors are taught how to cure people, but they don't always know how to care for them. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Dr. Robert Pearl, author of the new book, Uncaring, How Physician Culture Kills Doctors and Patients. You know, Dr. Pearl, I'm also really worried about the primary care physicians. You know, I wanted to go a little bit deeper on with you about how primary care is so undervalued and, you know, and just kind of revisiting that cultural hierarchy you mentioned. I mean, you have these specialists at top who, who perform the most emergent life-saving procedures like cardiac surgeons and neurosurgeons. And then you have below them, the physicians who do some of the most complex procedures like transplant, cancer, trauma surgeons. Then below them, you have the general interventional specialties. And then at the bottom of the caste system, you have primary care. And, and you know, I, I know there's a lot of primary care physicians out there listening to you right now, and they're, they're frustrated, they're marginalized. And, you know, and you mentioned this, the study earlier in our conversation today about how researchers concluded that having more primary care physicians in a geography, it correlates with lower mortality and fewer deaths. Um, and has beneficial health outcomes, but also specialty physicians in that same study, it was found that there's a higher probability of patients dying sooner with a higher concentration of specialists. So it seems like we, we definitely have a misalignment in our physician workforce. And it also, it seems like we've turned primary care physicians into these gatekeepers and administrators and, you know, they're dealing with red tape and they're glorified data entry clerks. And I, I, I'm just wanting to, you know, explore with you today also, like, where's the hope in primary care? I mean, given that they're the foundation of a more cost-effective, prevention-oriented system, you know, how can we position them better to lead in this new movement towards value? And I mean, how can we give them the more prominent position, you know, in the American healthcare system to really lead change? And how can our country get more medical students to go into primary care? And how can we reconfigure the compensation model so cognitive care is valued over procedural care. And, and then, you know, lastly, just let's say all this happens and primary care is enabled and empowered, you know, how long is it going to take to have the societal health improvements that we're seeking and getting a return on that investment from increasing the primary care physician community for the greater public good? Let me begin by pointing out what I said earlier about this shift that has happened in our scientific knowledge. In the later part of the 20th century, the specialty that was really at the top of the hierarchy was primary care, because we had so few tools to be able to make a diagnosis, MRI, CT were, I'll say, not here, only coming into existence. And we had so few ways to intervene. Cardiac surgery had over 10% mortality. Total joints were still very marginal in their use and their utility. And the intuition of the primary care physician to solve very complex problems was seen as the epitome of medical excellence. That's what it was. Today, we have a different healthcare world. 
And I mentioned before the Kubler-Ross five stages. Acceptance doesn't mean you like today more than the past. It's accepting that today is different. We wouldn't give up the CT and the MRI. We wouldn't give up what is the electronic health record and soon to be AI analysis of the electronic health record. We wouldn't give up the operations we have that actually add value, but they have consequences. And if we're going to be able to do what you're describing, which is to put the dollars and the value in on the right place, we need to figure out how primary care can adjust to the current world. And within that, I think it will mean that we need to reshape how primary care sees itself and positions itself in the overall healthcare world. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I already said earlier that in large multi-specialty medical groups, primary care physicians are given a lot more value and paid more because they are recognized for what they can do, both to raise quality, to exceed prevention goals, to be able to avoid complications from chronic disease, to be able to facilitate the care of patients. We're also seeing primary care organizations that are able to do this. Organizations like, as an example, ChenMed, that I wrote about in a Harvard Business Review piece that I described that have found ways to take the sickest of patients, the ones in the Medicare Advantage program, and be able to provide care in a different way that lowers the overall expense, raises the importance of primary care, and in the process generates added dollars. If you stop to think about what primary care could be doing in a system that had a payment to take care of a population of patients, you quickly realize how the way we provide care today doesn't make any sense. Let me give you a couple of examples. In most communities at five o'clock, the offices close. If I have a problem at six o'clock or seven o'clock, in fact, if I have a problem for the majority of the hours of the day, what do I get told? I should go to the local emergency room. Now think about that experience. First of all, they have no idea who I am. Most likely they don't have a common electronic health record with the doctor's data in the office. The cost is gonna be large and there's gonna be redundancy because they then tell me to go back to primary care the next day. How do we structure a system where instead of having individual primary care physicians, there are 10 doctors and each night one of them is available and they're paid out of the group payment that exists. And now all of a sudden, everyone's sharing the same information, definitive care can be provided and excess cost eliminated. And for those individuals for whom the primary care physician feels that there's a real problem, the care can be accelerated, higher quality, 
better service, lower cost. Think about the use of telemedicine. You know, right now what we're seeing is an explosion in what I will call anonymous primary care. That's an organization like Teladoc that will connect patients with a primary care physician to take care of their problems. And it's a rapidly growing part of medicine. Why is that? Because patients today often have problems that are straightforward because we understand them well. They're just looking for a prescription or for some other piece of care that can be provided without having to have the individual come to the office. Often it's the 70% of problems that can be best addressed through a history and some questioning rather than a direct physical examination. Why shouldn't that be central to primary care medicine? Part of the issue is it's 24 by seven. And again, I'll go back to the same theme. It's why the single doctor can no longer do it. You know, the TV shows of Dr. House, they don't exist right now, except in the rarest, rarest of conditions. We have the tools to be able to make the diagnosis, to prescribe the treatment. And I'll go a step beyond all of that. Something we did do when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, and that is to be able to link primary care and specialty care. And what we did was to be able to connect a specialist from 24 different specialties with a primary care physician when the patient was still in the room, often using telemedicine, or some other type of digital tool to be able to address the patient's problem. What do I mean by that? Well, if, a, if the patient came to the primary care physician with a rash and the physician felt that he or she needed to have specialty expertise from a dermatologist, this isn't the patient saying it, this is the doctor saying, I would normally refer the patient to the dermatologist. Instead of just doing that, we used a digital photograph that was sent to a dermatologist who would be caring for hundreds of primary care physicians, because at any given moment, very few of them would have a patient with a rash. And 70% of the time, we were able to solve the problem there and then. I don't know amongst the physicians listening in what it's like in your community, but in the places that I've been, the waits for dermatology can be six days, six weeks, or six months. In six minutes, the patient left with a solution. It's these kinds of 21st century processes that I believe that primary care can and need to lead, not necessarily by themselves, often with the specialists, but working in a very different way in a different kind of culture where primary care and specialty care sit down representing a large number of doctors to come up with common agreements based upon evidence-based practices for how to care for a given problem in a consistent, technologically enabled, efficient way. And if we did that, 
we could not only raise the quality and improve the, I'll say the patient experience, because we solved the problem right away, but lower the cost of medical care. And I believe in that process to redefine the specialty and elevate its value dramatically. Primary care shouldn't be the gatekeepers, they should be the facilitators of higher quality, easier to access, lower cost care. Not doing it by simply sending out a lot of referrals, but leveraging their expertise along with specialists. One final thought. My belief is that most of the time when primary care sends a, a consult to a specialist, and I don't mean for when, the, when a procedure is indicated, obviously that has to be done by the specialist, but when it truly is a consultation for advice, it's not that the primary care physician doesn't have a lot of the necessary information. They just need to have 10% more, but you can't get 10% more in the structure of today. And by de facto, you're there for giving that value away. You know, I reverse it in a way to say, if I'm seeing a patient with high blood pressure, I can recognize the high blood pressure as a surgeon. I may not know the right medication, but if I can connect with a primary care physician who can tell me what medication to change, I can solve the patient's problem there and then. That's the kind of integrated accountable structure that I believe needs to happen. And that if we can do it, we'll not only improve the care for patients and save their lives, but do the same for physicians, particularly those in primary care. And by the way, it is a model that we used for the large employers like Apple, where we put a primary care physician on campus, but connect him or her with 24 different specialists. And in the overriding majority of times, we could again solve the employee's problem there and then immediately without further intervention by the specialist, higher quality, greater convenience, lower cost with high satisfaction, both among the patients and the doctors. Dr. Pearl, I want to keep thinking about the patient experience and satisfaction that you, you're talking about and, and how this is a, also a challenge in physician culture that we're in a consumer-oriented industry. It's been shown by research that when patients leave negative reviews, only 4% of the complaints are explicitly tied to the medical treatment they received. The other 96% focused on issues related to customer service. Patients feel disrespected by long wait times, short visits, and poor communication, and, and they don't understand why doctors leave them hanging for days with, before answering simple, non-urgent questions. They wonder why physicians aren't willing to communicate with them via text or email, and with more and more healthcare dollars coming out of the patient's own pocket, why is it so hard to figure out what something will cost? So millennials have started this trend toward retail medicine that's causing upheaval in traditional healthcare venues because convenience trumps loyalty for them. And doctors are perplexed and disturbed by the loss of loyalty. On one hand, patients continue to describe their doctors as both wonderful people and excellent practitioners. On the other hand, it's clear the relationship is fraying. So the widening disconnect between patients and doctors is rooted in a set of diverging values and expectations. 
Patients think excellent customer service and greater convenience are especially important, but doctors don't. Dr. Pearl, can you speak to why the physician community so often de-emphasizes the importance of customer service and patient satisfaction? Why are physician definitions for service, satisfaction, and quality so different from how patients define the concepts? And how can we bridge the gap? This is such a vital area and a perfect example of this division by culture. You can't explain why a culture is. You, know, you can't explain, again, the Italian versus the German cultures. They just are different. Maybe they happened historically. Maybe they happened geographically. But their power is massive. I said earlier that culture, to some extent, allows you to avoid the harm you inflict and to take privilege that you desire. And some of that, I think, exists within the physician world. You know, doctors see their office as the ultimate destination to which patients should come. They don't see the patient's time as particularly significant compared to their own. In the culture of medicine, everything we do from creating I'll say waiting times for patients to get care to the days of the week and the hours of the day that we provide that care to the technology that we both offer and promote that add little value like robotic procedures and proton emission uh, treatments and the ones we avoid like telemedicine, like secure email, like uh, text messages, they speak to the culture of medicine and the role of the physician at the apex of that hierarchy. And for a long time, that was acceptable to patients. But we're in a new world. We are in a world of technology, a world of Amazon, a world where people feel that they are entitled to have information, to have access, to have control. And I think what you're describing right now is a battle that exists of two cultures. You know, I was reading this morning about some data and when patients were asked, what is most important to you about your physicians? 85% of them spoke about things like empathy, listening, being available. This is what they valued. The medical school they went to was under 20%. They didn't care. Turn it around to doctors. What are doctors most proud about? Where did you do your training? How many publications do you have? What societies do you belong to? The values just don't align. And as I say, we can make hypotheses about why that is. We can talk about the evolutions in society. We can talk about the fact that people are now working more prior to COVID, commuting more. We can talk about the fact that there's now increasingly two people working in a family rather than in the past. We can give lots of, I'll say, look back answers. The truth is those cultures now clash. And what we know is that ultimately the patient who is the consumer 
that culture will end up winning because if the traditional medical system doesn't offer it, someone else will. A company that I look at very closely is Amazon. I focused on it very much when it became part of Haven, the, the linkage with Chase and with uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And I noted in the book on caring that anyone who thinks that all the CEO Jeff Bezos was interested in was providing health coverage to his own employees in a not-for-profit kind of way is probably just very convinced that all Amazon does today is sell books. No, no. He wants to take over a sixth of healthcare the same way that he has taken over a sixth of retail. And anyone who doubts the ability of Amazon to do it just needs to look at what's happened in the past few weeks. Suddenly Amazon's gonna make available its telemedicine services very broadly. And in certain communities, it's gonna to start to offer direct patient care, leveraging the systems that it has for its employees. Either we as physicians are going to recognize this and make the adjustments, or we're going to get left behind. That's what happens in every cultural clash. I host a, a podcast of my own called Fixing Healthcare. I also host one called Coronavirus The Truth. But my guest, whom I'll be publishing a week from this Sunday, is a woman who has metastatic breast cancer, who's been battling it now for a few years, who talks about how she has to get her scans, both of her brain and lung to which the cancer has gone on a periodic basis, and what it's like for her when she has to wait even a few hours on the day that the doctor said that he's going to call her back with the results. That kind of notion that patients are suffering, that they're losing sleep prior to getting the information, and that it is injury that we are inflicting, and we need to have better systems and approaches. There's a limit to what can happen because if you do a biopsy, you've got to wait overnight for the fixative to work and the stains to occur. It's not that we can completely can take care of their pain, anxiety, discomfort, but I'd ask the doctors out there, can we do better? And if we can do better, I think that we have to do better. You know, you mentioned earlier this notion of the loss of purpose and mission. And I concur completely with you that that is such a positive, or the mission, sense of mission and purpose is such a positive force for doctors. You know, I've done a lot of trips to other countries. It's part of why all the profits from the book are going to Doctors Without Borders, because I understand what's going on when you have the experience to provide care in other nations and the amazing good that you do. And I think back to talking to a doctor who went to Liberia to take care of people with Ebola a few years ago. And he tells stories about how he had to have IVs running into his arm 
while he was delivering care because inside the suits they had to wear, it was so hot that he'd sweat so much that he would have died of dehydration if he was not being rehydrated continually. And I think back to how happy he was under the most miserable of circumstances, recognizing the amazing contribution that he was making to the saving of lives. I don't think all of us should have that level of dedication to be wearing suits and getting IVs while we take care of Ebola. But again, I think we've given up so much as a consequence of focusing on the systemic issues of healthcare. On the trips that I've done to other countries, I can't remember a single person who did not come back thrilled, motivated with all of the anti-burnout, anti-moral injury emotions emanating out of their bodies. And we've lost it. I think we lost it a little bit because the American society overall has lost that in general. Everything's become more of a business and less of a profession. I think we lost it because of these pressures put upon us by insurance companies, by some technology, computers, regulations. We can go to a whole list of reasons that are there. But I think that if we invest some of our efforts into figuring out how we can reverse that, how we can make the suffering of our patients be just a little bit less, the care we provide be a bit more equitable, be a little bit more magnanimous, expressing gratitude. These have been shown by psychological researchers to not only help the people who receive them, but the people who give them. And my view right now is that the culture of medicine is holding us back, but that the same culture has the possibility to allow us to regain much of what we've lost in the past. Well, Dr. Pearl, I wanted to explore with you the importance of culture and what is it and the impact it has on doctors. And, you know, we talked about this invisible component of the physician culture. And it's almost like the Sir Isaac Newton, you know, thinking about gravity or Adam Smith and the invisible hand. And, you know, there's this almost this huge gap between what physicians know and what they actually do. And, you know, hand washing is is a is a really good example of that. You know, physicians know that better, but they don't always do it. And the people that are immersed in in that culture sometimes are unaware of his existence or the powerful influence that culture has. Can you um, maybe go a little bit deeper about the physician culture and maybe some things we should be thinking about there? You raise a very excellent point about how powerful this invisible force can be. And for listeners, let's go back to 1850 to Vienna, Austria. Ignaz Semmelweis has just been appointed to oversee the delivery unit at the University Hospital, one of the most prestigious in all of the world. And he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed that the mortality rate is 18%. The most common cause of death is puerperal fever. 
a uterine infection following delivery of a child that spreads systemically and goes on to kill the woman. The belief at the time is that the cause is a, a, these, well, the, the cause are miasmas, these particles that wafe up from the smelly streets below, and that women in labor inhale them and go on to develop this systemic infection. But he's even more embarrassed by the fact that the delivery service adjacent to his, one run by nurse midwives, is, has a mortality that's two-thirds lower. And he says, how is it possible that these miasmas are affecting my patients and not their patients? There has to be another explanation. Now, in medicine, it often turns out that the greatest discoveries happen by happenstance. In this case, a colleague doing an autopsy on a woman who died from puerperal fever, nicks his finger, develops a local infection, goes on to systemic infection and dies with a clinical course that seems identical to these women following childbirth. Semmelweis concludes, or at least hypothesizes, that rather than the cause of puerperal fever being these smelly particles wafting up from the streets below, that it's something carried either on the hands or the aprons of these obstetricians as they go from the autopsy room to the delivery room. And he insists that they change their aprons, their leather aprons that cover their underlying pressed three-piece suits and dip their hands in chlorinated water before they go in to deliver the child. And lo and behold, mortality drops from 18% down to under 2%, a 90% reduction. He publishes this in a leading journal, writes letters to the directors of the maternity services around the world, and guess what happens? Nothing. No one pays attention, and those who do criticize his work. Now, think about this. You know, why do we say that doctors don't do the right things? You know, we blame it on money or time. There's no cost in changing the leather apron. There's no time in dipping your hands in chlorinated water. No, this is the physician culture. See, at the time, Doctors were elevated. They were held in the highest esteem. The idea that they were the source of infection, it just didn't seem possible. And those leather aprons they wore to cover their three-piece suits, they were signs of experience. The more blood, the more guts, the more pus, it meant they were more talented. They deserved higher respect. And to throw those away or to clean them off, simply was not going to be acceptable. Despite the science, despite the data, despite the information, the culture won the day and tens of thousands of women have died as a consequence. So leap forward 150 years. In the United States today, the leading cause of death for hospitalized patients is a hospital-acquired infection.
The cause, we all know, it's Clostridium difficile. And we all know that unlike the coronavirus, it doesn't go through the air and is only carried on the hands of individuals going from one patient's room to another. And if we observe doctors on their rounds, one out of every three times, one third of the time, they fail to wash their hands as they go from one patient's room to another. With the alcohol-based disinfectants we have, it's a matter of a couple of seconds, there's no cost involved. It's the same culture that tells doctors, you're not the cause of disease, you are a healer. And we simply skip this step with the same consequences as happened during Semmelweis's time. We're all aware of the problem of hospital-acquired infections. When a patient dies, though, we assume it's someone else. We conclude it certainly can't be us. It's why I call the book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. It certainly has that impact on patients once who acquire a hospital-based, a hospital-caused infection. And I personally believe that the impact of that type of experience on the physician is equally problematic. And in a few cases, it does contribute to depression, to contribute to dissatisfaction, to lack of fulfillment, and even death. Well, Dr. Pearl, I wanted to explore deeper with you this concept of institutional racism. I mean, it seems like the connective tissue which bound the pandemic with the protest was institutional racism. And contrary to what commentators choose to discuss, the marches against inequality did not threaten the African-American community's health as much as the inequality that already existed in U.S. medicine. I mean, the public health data simply is irrefutable on this point. And when you present this data to doctors, they're more likely to blame socioeconomic factors like income and education and elements that exist outside of their offices and medical practices. When presented the evidence of racial bias in healthcare, physicians point to the flaws in society as the reason why Black patients experience poor health. And they'll insist that social determinants like where people were born, raised, work, play, where they socialize, and all these social dynamics such as racial segregation and poverty and educational barriers, those are the factors to blame, not the doctors. As in so much of American healthcare, the systemic and cultural issues are so intertwined, and no one wants to see themselves as being biased, but attributing these problems to external factors or biological falsehoods alone, it's a clear-cut expression of prejudice, and it really prevents doctors from confronting the basic psychological and cultural patterns that ultimately lead to poor patient outcomes. And with all the pressures weighing on doctors today, the, the thought of addressing institutional racism, it seems like too great of a burden. Nonetheless, health equity must be the ultimate goal. So Dr. Pearl, how would you think about how we can address issues in the current physician culture to reduce disparities in care? I mean, are, you know, and in, in really confront the data and acknowledge these implicit 
biases. Should we also somehow re-engineer pay-for-performance models to include health equity as a key financial measure for success to ultimately make this change happen? As you point out, the data says that two-thirds of white physicians, and white physicians are the dominant population in the medical profession, have implicit bias. And for listeners who may not be familiar with what this means, tests are done where you're shown a combination of pictures and words, and you're asked to link together the word with the choice of, of, of you asked to link together the specific word, good or bad, smart or clumsy, with a picture on the opposite side that has that same word imprinted on the picture. And white physicians will more quickly associate words like smart and good with the white person and be slower to do so with the black person. This is implicit bias and I'm not an expert on the psychological way that one changes it, but it's my understanding that it's extremely difficult to do. And so rather than asking, how do we eliminate implicit bias? The right question is, what can we do to overcome it? The first thing is a recognition. You know, amongst those two thirds of the physicians we're talking about, they weren't aware that they were treating their white patients different than their black patients. And as we mentioned earlier, we know that they were twice as likely to do a test of a white patient for coronavirus than a black patient with the same symptoms even though the data said the mortality amongst the black patient was likely to be much higher, they couldn't see that their actions were biased. They didn't recognize they were giving less pain medication to the black patient. It wasn't intentional. They just did it on an assumption that the patient was not suffering as much. This is what culture does. We see people like ourselves, in a more empathetic way. We see them as suffering more, we see them as having more pain, and so we give them the medication that they need, and we don't see that amongst people we see as different than ourselves. That is how every culture works, but including the medical culture that is out there. I think there are two ways that we can approach this. I think the first is to acknowledge it. As I said, it's hard to get people to recognize the role they play when the statistics, the data provided is at a macro level. Because they assume that it's someone else. It's similar to a patient who dies from the hospital acquired infection. And doctors will assume it had to be someone else who carried that organism. Someone had to. If the data overall shows a bias, a lack of equality and equity, then 
It's individuals who are accountable. There is no such thing as the system. It's all of the individuals who contributed to create that total system of care. One option, and I wrote about this in a Forbes piece, was the use of artificial intelligence as a means to be able to address the racism that exists. And I wrote it because it followed a problematic experience when United Health, through its Optimum subsidiary, wanted to allocate added resources to patients who had the greatest need, it relied on artificial intelligence to figure out who those individuals were. Now, here's what was really interesting. The data that was provided was based upon claims. And one of the things to realize is that artificial intelligence is no better than the data you give it. It is why if you take 10,000 mammograms, 5,000 of which have been shown to represent cancer based upon biopsy, and 5,000 of them have been shown not to be cancer based upon biopsy, so that you have obvious data with clear conclusions, the machines, the AI machines are capable of being better than radiologists right now by 10%, but probably more over time, as multiple small pieces can be extracted to explain the diagnosis, something that the human mind that depends upon only a few factors, a few heuristic factors, like whether there's calcification and whether there's irregularity can accomplish. But when you give it data that is not that clear, the answer that comes up become distorted. And what happened in this United Health Care experience was that the computers underselected black patients and overselected white patients. Now, why did they do that? They did that because of the, well, that thing. Why did the computers do that? The computers did that because they made the assumption or the people programming them made the assumption that the more care you received, the sicker you were. But what it didn't realize was how biased the physicians were who provided the initial care. In fact, they delivered $1,800 less medical care per patient when corrected for differences in age, socioeconomics, and medical severity. And instead of selecting only 10 or 15% of people as the algorithm did, who were black patients for the added resources, it should have selected almost 50%. So AI is no better than the data that it is given. But with that understanding, AI is capable of being able to look at care delivery, the actual care itself, and to be able, as an example, to compare the medication given, the pain medication given after procedures based upon the procedures. And when it then compares the medications 
against the race of the individuals, lo and behold, doctors can see that they give 40% less pain medication to individuals who are black. And so what AI can do is to remind us that we should be re-looking at the dose of medication we prescribe. It may have been the right one for a given patient, but if there's a underlying probability of bias, in the same way that computers now can give warnings when you prescribe an antibiotic that the patient could be allergic to, that is an opportunity that exists for the unbiased machine, because machines are unbiased to help us overcome our biases that exist. We can build it into women after breast surgery as to whether they should have mastectomy or not. We can build it into the question of whether we remove the ovaries in women based appropriately upon their age and relationship to menopause, but inappropriately taking out the ovaries in premenopausal black women. And I think we could actually apply it to a complex system, trying to answer the question, why do black women have three times the mortality after childbirth? And I predict that if we took all of that information that's embedded in electronic medical record, that we're going to find that we don't do the things for black patients that we do for white patients. I don't know whether it's gonna be how often we check on them, how long we keep them hospitalized. I can't be sure what it's going to be or whether the race of the staff will make a difference, but artificial intelligence and advanced system computers today are more than capable of analyzing this vast amount of information and being able to give us insights. And if that had been in place in the ERs early in the coronavirus, what we would have seen is doctors being asked to reconsider whether this patient with this group of, system, of symptoms that is highly likely to be COVID shouldn't be tested. It will report that for everyone based upon regardless of race, but what it'll find is that the racial bias, the racial discrimination is significant and it'll help us to overcome and to recognize the racism that exists, not because any of us are bad people, but because that is the way bias exists inside individuals in any culture and or how the culture blinds us to that reality that happens on a day-to-day -day basis in American medicine. Dr. Pearl, I have really enjoyed our conversation today and truly your new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients is transformative and allows us to face reality and have hope for a better tomorrow. And, and I wanted to land the plane here and conclude with thinking about how these complex organizations can move forward and, and really address physician culture change. And I thought I would start with uh, just ask you uh, about, you know, a parable you uh, reference in your book. In Buddhism, uh, a bodhisattva refers to anyone who is able to reach nirvana 
but delays doing so out of compassion in order to save suffering beings. And this sacred role, which requires great personal sacrifice, it mirrors the virtues of medical practice as healers traditionally put the needs of others ahead of their own. And the 21st century, however, physicians are often focused on their own suffering. You know, doctors have voiced their discontent, telling all the world the problems that they face. I mean, they've called out all the individuals they believe to be responsible for harming them and their patients. And they've outlined their demands. So they've, you know, detailed how the healthcare system should change and the remedies they expect from all the big players. And we talked earlier about the Kubler-Ross model and, you know, thinking about now that we're at this stage post-pandemic and, you know, after the denial and the anger and the bargaining and the depression that physicians have overcome. I mean, there's that final step and that's accepting the need to change and making the commitment required to truly transform healthcare. And I know that's going to be an agonizing process for doctors as they have to, you know, face the reality of their own culture. So, you know, I, I wanted to just ask you, you know, just an, an acceptance of the realities that we're facing with physician culture and, and, and the reality that we have in this post-pandemic healthcare environment, you know, how can we redefine the future? And, you know, in your book, you have a, a great model, the five C's of cultural change as, a, as an approach we may look to, to to go about moving forward. Can you maybe explain a little bit about that and how that can be applied in this particular issue with physician culture? Happy to do so. Uh, I think Rears listeners need to think about both the systemic change and the cultural change. They need to think about opportunities for physicians to lead the way and opportunities for patients to help lead the way. So let me talk about the five C's, the model of cultural change. It's not the only model out there. It's just one that I used when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente. And we're able to successfully do it. And in the book on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, I go into great detail. But I'll provide a brief outline. And then I want to mention a few of the things that the patients can do. The first process is confronting the reality. What we know is that the culture is going to blind us to what is going on in this post-coronavirus era. As you say, physicians will talk about all the problems that they are experiencing. They'll talk about all the problems that insurance companies and employers are imposing on their patients, but they won't be able to see the ways that they contribute to the problem, whether we look at the racial biases that the doctors do, the failures in prevention, the unnecessary procedures, the lack of offering convenient technology. There's a long list of opportunities that exist for us to do, but we're not gonna do those until we confront the reality of the role that we are playing. But confronting it is not enough. It's a little bit like the hand washing we spoke about earlier. Every physician understands, every physician could get 100% on a test 
about hospital-acquired infections. They know that it's a terrible problem. They know that failure to wash hands is contributing to the C. difficile transmission that occurs and the mortality that results. Because the second phase is commit. Being able to commit to making change happens. And that's difficult to do in a world in which doctors are overwhelmed. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. You know, at the end of this book, I talk about the love of my parents. My parents had a wonderful lifelong relationship. I've never seen two people more madly in love across their entire existence, or at least the part that I've seen. My dad saw my mother as perfect. On her deathbed, he would have given anything for another day with her. His entire life savings, his arms, his leg, it wouldn't have mattered. She was perfect. My mother loved my dad just as much, but she could see the flaws. That's how I see medicine. I see medicine as an area that I love just as much now as I did before. But now I not only can see and confront the problems, I'm committed to change, which is why I write the books, why I have the privilege to be on this podcast, and why I do the other, and why I do the teaching that I do at the Stanford Business School and Medical School. But committed to change is not enough yet because you have to have a way to do that. And that's where I think the third C, connect, comes into play. In the culture of medicine, doctors have always looked at their autonomy, their independence. It's a well-known meme about doctors not wanting to work together. And that might have worked in the 20th century when they were taking care of relatively simple acute problems, be them pneumonia or appendicitis. But in the era of chronic disease, it just can't work. And they've got to connect with each other. And it's out of that connection that they're going to be able to come up with the best solutions. The opportunity we mentioned earlier of doctors finding ways to link together while the patient's in the exam room and provide care immediately that solves the patient's issue without them having to go home, schedule a visit, come back and see the specialist and start the whole process all over again. It's a tremendous competitive advantage that only doctors can lead once they decide that connecting with each other, collaborating, cooperating are gonna be key. The fourth is the collaboration. How can we work together for the greater good? That question sounds simple, but it does mean we, that each physician has to change the way he or she practices. Doctors in a specialty need to look for more ways to subspecialize and each have greater expertise, even if in a more narrow area of practice. And then finally, contribute which to me is what we said before. It's this sense of mission and purpose that really give us the fulfillment. 
you know, there's a huge amount of psychological literature out there about why beyond a certain point, a number way below the average position salary, more income does not add any greater happiness in life. There's a lot of data out there why expressing gratitude for what others do rather than expecting them to be gratified about what we do makes people happier and more fulfilled. There's a huge amount of literature about why giving someone a certificate for $20 adds greater happiness and fulfillment than getting that same certificate. In the book I write about Laurie Santos, the professor at Yale, who has an entire class on happiness that has now been viewed online by 300,000 people and one every four Yale students takes it. We don't understand what adds fulfillment, satisfaction to our lives, to our profession. And right now, I believe that a major stumbling block is this physician culture that values, that believes in, that establishes norms around, that tells stories about things that don't necessarily improve the lives of doctors, that often harms patients, and that I believe contributes to burnout and does inflict oral injury. And maybe the most important question, and the one that I fear that doctors don't answer well today, is going to be when I decide I don't want any more treatments, will you be there for me? Or will you desert me? In my first book, Mistreated, I tell the story about my dad and how he died from a medical error. And I talk about how at the end of his life, he had a major bleed into his brain. My brother and I and my sister came to the, to the hospital in Florida where he was. My brother and I from the West Coast, my sister from New York. And there he was strapped to the bed with a breathing tube in place, an NG tube down his nose, a line of doctors out the door with the GI doc wanting to put in a feeding tube and the ENT physician wanted to do a tracheostomy. The neurosurgeon wanted to take out a piece of his skull. My brother was also a physician and I looked at the scans and he wasn't gonna get better. And we told the doctors, thank you, but no thank you. That we wanted him to be kept comfortable, but we recognized he was never gonna recover. This is not what he wanted. And the pain of his death was made worse by the fact that for the next two and a half days that he was in the hospital, we never saw a physician. There was never someone there to comfort the family in their time of greatest need. And I concluded and mistreated the fact where I pointed out that there was no CPT code, no ICD-9, no way to get compensated for this type of compassionate care. But I knew there was more to that, which is why I researched and wrote on caring. Because I also have realized that the physician culture, being with a family, 
when there's nothing you can do, is simply not valued in the physician culture, that too has to change. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much. What an incredible conversation we've had today. We're so grateful for your time and for sharing everything with us. Uh, it's apparent that we need a physician culture that prioritizes caring. Uh, there's also an opportunity where they can pre-order your book and have read the book and, and you've got some benefits for that, for those who do that. And so I'd like to just have you mention quickly how they go about ordering your book and what comes along with that pre-order. So once again, all the profits go to Doctors Without Borders, but if they're interested, they go to the website, robertpearlmd.com. That's robertpearlmd.com, uh, where they can order the book through any one of a variety of companies. I don't provide the, the book, but there are nine different sellers who will be able to fulfill the order. And if they do that on the same website, they pre-order that on the same website, they can also get the discussion guide, the signed book plate, the book reference list, the chance to read the introductory chapter before anyone else does. The book will be delivered to their home on May 18th. And I'll look very uh, much forward to hearing the readers, the listeners' feedback about the book. If it's good, if it's bad, if it asks questions, if it questions the assumptions, that's the process by which we all learn. My belief is that together, we can once again make American healthcare the best in the world. We have to acknowledge that it's not today. We have to come together to make the changes. We have to force the systems to be able to become more patient-centric. And we need to do the same with the physician culture and the overall culture of medicine. I look forward to the book event. and I thank you for hosting the interview today. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. It's been a great honor. We enjoyed our time together with you today.